It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. So it's a Monday edition of Daily Thunder, and we're going to be going through uh, every morning of this week a... a a session that is a part of a five-part series that's called The Five Fabulous Fingers. Let me say that again. The Five Fabulous Fingers. It's a fun thing to say. And uh, it's interesting because in Christianity, lists of five can get people in big trouble (laughs) because a lot of the church has been divided over lists of five, the five points of Arminianism and the five points of Calvinism. And so now I'm going to whip out another five points. These are, these are safe points. I would say these are the rallying points of the body of Christ. The ones that I would say every Arminianist and every Calvinist should agree with. Uh, these are the uniting aspects of Christianity. And uh, so this is, in essence, what I'm going to be walking through is the basis of what we believe here at Ellerslie. And just to sort of give a a deeper introduction into the construct of how we handle the word of God, how we handle Jesus Christ, how we handle his work on the cross, how we handle the outpoured Holy Spirit, and how we handle our mission and our assignment as Christians. And so each of these days uh, of this week, uh, we're going to go through one of the five fingers. And so the first one is the text, and, or what I will oftentimes call the word of God in text. And uh, so that's what we're gonna dig into today. I think you guys will really enjoy this. Uh, <clears throat> so it starts with uh, what we're going to call the invisible God. And I think it's oftentimes an unusual thing for us to comprehend that God is invisible. We know he is, but it's a little confusing to our brain because we feel like, wait a minute, I, I could have sworn that I saw God in Jesus Christ. And what well, you did, uh, but there's a basis of understanding this revelation of God, which we know is the word of God, uh, by first of all understanding that God is invisible. And his memorial name to all generations is Yahuwah. We actually don't know how to pronounce it. We, we say Yahweh, but it's the ineffable and to the Jews an unspeakable name that only the high priest once a year would say on the day of atonement when he entered into the Holy of Holies. But it's called the Tetragrammaton or the four letters. And it's the proper name of God. If you can even imagine God having a proper name, he gives his name to Moses and he says, I am that I am. And that's what that is. It's the God who was, who is, and always will be the same. And what do we know about this God? We know quite a few things about this God. And if I were to say in following that statement, why, how, how do we know things about this God? It is because this invisible God desires to be known. And that is a critical understanding and a component to the entirety of Christianity, that God desires to be known. Uh, If you just pause and ponder that for a second, it is an astounding thought. God could be the same yesterday, today, and forever, and not desire to be known. And anyone who violates his, uh, his behavior the way that he desires things, he could just strike down, he's God. But this God desires to be known, and what's amazing is when he reveals himself, he reveals himself as love. I mean, it's, it's truly a remarkable uh, thing to, to dig into, which is, of course, why we love to do that. Uh, no man has seen God at any time, in John 1.18, and then John 6.46 says, not that any man has seen the Father, 
And then 1 John 4, 12, which says it again, no man has seen God at any time. Now there's more to those sentences that I'm trimming off because it's going to set up, and John is, continues to set this up. He says, yes, Yahweh, God the Father, is invisible, but, and then he's going to set us up for a revelation, a revelation of that which is invisible. In 1 Timothy 1.17 and then also in 6.16, we see, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting, amen. So we get this idea that God Almighty uh, is invisible, but at the same time, God desires to be made visible. He desires to be seen. The marvel of the word. It takes that which is invisible and makes it visible. So if I were to describe, and many of you have heard me do this just because you've been students at Ellerslie, but if I had an invisible thought in my head, in other words, I could say, what is that thought? And you could try and guess all day long. It's like uh, Nebuchadnezzar asking what his dream was uh, and say, no, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You need to tell me what the dream is and then interpret it. Okay, that's a, an extra added challenge. So a thought is an invisible thing. However, if I take my thought that is invisible and I package it in a word or a series of words, and then I shoot it out into the air, and it floats around and zooms around, and it goes in through your ear canal, and boom, into your brain. And if you understand those words, you can actually unpack my invisible thought and know it. You can read my mind. Isn't that incredible? You can actually know something that is invisible. Why? How? In and through a vehicle. What is that vehicle? It's a word. And so what we see is that God designed that which is invisible to be communicated through a word. This is his transportation device. This is his carrying vehicle. That which is unknown, unseen, and invisible, he desires to convey. So what is his chosen vehicle? A word. So the marvel of the word, that's the term we use in scripture and we use in our Christian dialect I had a good time studying the word today. Oh, we heard the word preached today. What are we talking about? We're talking about that which God has given to us. That which has revealed the invisible, we now have access to. And we share in it. We study it. We learn it. We learn to rightly divide it. And so in so doing, we are actually studying and proclaiming and knowing that which is invisible. So the word is that which is, it, it takes that which is invisible and makes it visible. So when you think about the person of Jesus Christ, that makes a lot of sense. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him or revealed him. So it is true that no man has seen God at any time, but the word has revealed him. Jesus Christ being that word the only begotten son now takes on flesh and in this natural realm communicates that which is unseen. Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus says, when you see me, you've seen the Father. So what we have is the amazing idea that the word 
reveals that which is invisible. I don't know, we're probably going to need some more chairs here. Jace, would you mind, and maybe Jackson, could you guys get up and help with that? It's good to see you all. <clears throat> By the way, do, is this working, or are you having to control it? Okay. The word reveals. It takes that which is hidden and makes it known. So Jesus Christ is going to reveal unto us that which is unseen. But the text of Scripture is doing that before Jesus even comes. Before Jesus comes, we have a word before the word. So if we were to capitalize the word as, and know him as Jesus, we also have a word that is given before that to prepare us to recognize Jesus. And that is going to take that which is hidden and make it known. So the word of God in text is going to start at a burning bush, if you want to say it that way, when God Almighty is going to encounter a man named Moses. Moses is going to encounter God, the unseen God. He's going to, in a sense, strangely, even though he's not visible in a human sense, going to be visible in a flame of fire sense. And the word is going to begin to be communicated, starting with the proper name of God. Isn't that interesting? This is sort of where God starts. It's like, hey, I want you to know who I am. I am that I am. Uh, that would be a little strange uh, to hear. God, so who are you? I am that I am. But that's the most important thing you can ever know about God is that he always was and is and will be the same. Because then when he begins to layer on top of that who he is, you begin to recognize and it'll always be that way. So it'll never alter. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oops. Uh, so... I'm not sure what the clicker, is that you that clicks it forward or is it actually me that does it? It's just delayed. The invisible hand. So many of you have heard me talk about the invisible hand, but if I have an invisible hand, you can't see it, right? And it has all sorts of activity that it's doing, you know, it's pointing, it's waving, it's beckoning, but you can't see it. Now imagine how much would be missed if this hand was busy, you know, waving and you didn't see it. This hand was busy pointing, it's like, hey, yeah, you. This hand was busy beckoning, yep, I want you to come to me, but you couldn't see it. So we would lose all that God is wanting to communicate to us because God is like an invisible hand. So one of the things that we know about God's right hand is the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. He saves with his right hand. So there's something about his right hand that is, has an intent and a motive to rescue. It does valiantly. And yet no man has seen it at any time. It's invisible. And so what God has done is he's created something in the very form and image of that which is invisible. And we're going to call it a work glove. But a work glove is actually made in the exact same image of that which is invisible. And when it relies or depends and yields to that hand, it actually, the hand slides into that work glove. And now, watch. With that work glove on top of that hand, what if that hand waves? You see it. Because even though the hand is invisible, you see the wave. Why? Because the work glove, that which is natural, that which is in this realm, is perfectly matching and in agreement with that which is invisible. And so when it points, what do you see? You see it point. When it beckons, says, come to me. You see it, you hear it, you understand it. Because that which is invisible has been conveyed in our realm. 
in a, in a realm that we can understand and relate to. So when I talk about the five fingers, you understand why I'm talking about a hand? You see, this is the hand and it's invisible. And so we have five fingers. We have the one, one that we're talking about today is the word of God in text. And the word of God in text is where it all begins. God starts with that. And that word of God in text, which is known as the scriptures or the Bible, is actually given very much on purpose so that we would understand the other fingers, so that we would have a full revelation of that which is invisible. So in John 5, 19, it says, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatsoever things he does, these also does the Son likewise. So that's hand glove talk right there. So Jesus became a work glove. Now, I'm going to talk about Jesus tomorrow very specifically. So today we're dealing with the first finger, which is the text, the word of God in text. Tomorrow I'm going to talk about the word of God in person, and it's Jesus. So what we see is the word. So if you understand, then answered the word, Jesus, and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of himself. It's like a work glove. In and of itself, a work glove can't do anything. If we take the work glove off the hand and just sort of say it, hey, pull a weed, and then drop it, it's just going to flop. It cannot function in itself, which is interesting because we're thinking, well, Jesus, you can do whatever you want. Why in the world are you saying you can't do anything of yourself, but only that which you see the Father do because he is deliberately choosing to function as a man. He is God in a man's body, but he is humbling himself to become obedient. He is behaving as a man ought to behave so that he can be our high priest. So though he is God and he does it perfectly, right? He is actually becoming a work glove so that he can save the work gloves. You see, we are off. There is something wrong with us and it's called sin. But we can't receive that hand inside of us. So Jesus comes and he functions the way we were created to function as work gloves. And in so doing, he sets us free so that now the hand can enter into us and we can begin to function as we ought to function. So the five fabulous fingers. The word of God in text is known as the scripture. The word of God in person is Jesus Christ. The word of God in action is the cross. The word of God in us is the Holy Spirit. And the word of God through us, I'm just going to call it Christianity. So what I just described for you is the essence of the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. And it's captured in five fingers. So what I would say is one of the best ways to understand very simply the idea of Christianity, what we desire to teach here in this environment, is the five fingers. We want you to have a solid understanding of the text of Scripture. We want you to know where it comes from, why God gave it to us, how to rightly handle it, and what it reveals. It reveals the word of God in person. It reveals Jesus Christ. But not just the man Jesus, it reveals what that man will do, which we call the word of God in action, the cross. You see, the summation, the high point in all history, the day that is referred to all throughout the Old Testament, in that day, in that day, in that day. Well, what day? The day of the cross. The cross, which is a Passover day, near 2,000 years ago, is going to be a critical high point. And now some of you could say, well, what about the resurrection? Yes, the resurrection flows out of that cross. 
And what about uh, Pentecost? Well, yes, Pentecost flows out of that cross. What is happening at that cross is a pinnacle point. It is a central of central points in all of history because everything is changed on that day. Everything is altered. It's a new covenant that is established. And then as a result, the Holy Spirit can now come and dwell inside of these bodies. What happens when God moves inside of the bodies of men and women? Well, you change the world. The word of God through us, Christianity. That is actually how we believe. We believe all of those first four, and as a result, we are changed to live and to serve and to turn outward and to give our lives. So we're gonna go through finger number one today, which is the text. The amazing, miraculous, perfect text. When the text gains its rightful position, everything else falls in place. One of the things you're gonna note is that the devil is against this text. Now the text is merely God's word, okay? I'm calling it text to distinguish it between the Bible and the man, Jesus. However, the enemy hates God's word revealed. So God says, do not eat from this tree. The day in which you eat from this tree, you would surely die. And then the devil immediately comes in and begins to question that text or that word. And he says, did God really say that? Are you sure about that? It's the exact same thing he does today. He wants to question the text and get us to doubt it. This is his great strategy, is to diminish the integrity of it. So when the text gains its rightful position in our life, everything else falls in place. You see, there is a proper position that the Bible is supposed to have, and when it doesn't have that, when it gets diminished at any level, things start to get a little cattywampus. Okay, now, many of you have heard me share about the three characters, fact, faith, and experience. So you have three characters. You have fact, you have faith, and you have experience. Okay, so fact and faith and experience are all commissioned to do something impossible. Now, I know it doesn't sound impossible at first, but it is. You just need to trust me. And that is they need to walk the ridgepole of a barn. Okay, now some of you are like, I could do that. I saw Anne of Green Gables do that. However, this is like a razor sharp edge. Okay, no, no man can actually do it. You just need to trust me on that. And so the first character, right after I say that no man can do it, gets out and his name is Fact. Now, in Christianity, we don't usually use the word fact, but it can sometimes be helpful for us to understand what truth is. Truth is that which is without lie. It is actually a fact, but the reason we don't use the term fact is because truth is a person. It's Jesus Christ. But it's the word of God. Very simply put, it's the word of God in text, the word of God in person, and the word of God in action. It's what he has accomplished for us. And so the word of God gets up there, the fact gets up there, and just starts walking and has perfect balance. He does it. He does the impossible. And then the second character, which is you and me, it's faith. It's the position of faith. It's the one that has to choose what they believe. And so when faith gets up there and stares at the fact and watches it walk the ridge pole and then actually follows it, you know what happens? Faith gains balance and pulls off the impossible. Now, I know at first that sounds a little ridiculous that I'm using the term impossible, yet our first two characters pull it off. However, It is impossible, and it is not possible with man to actually do what I'm describing right now, but it is possible for God. And so when faith follows fact and believes it, it actually will pull off an impossible life. However, there's a third character that really gums things up, and that's a character named experience. 
Now, I've given experience many names over the years, emotion and different natural realm elements. It's all the stuff that tries to debunk the fact. And it spends all of its energy, it seems, even inside of you. Isn't it funny? You have emotions, but they always are you know, sort of challenging you. Do I really want to follow f- this fact? What would happen if I do this? And you have all sorts of experience. You have great Aunt Martha and what happened to her. You have Uncle Harold. You have all this stuff back here that makes noise. Now, the key is when fact gains its position, when the text gains its position in our life, everything falls into place and we gain balance. When we instead turn to our emotions and our experience and we doubt the fact, it's interesting, but our whole life falls to pieces. You see, when the fact, the truth, the word of God, loses its position in our life, we lose balance. Now you could say, well, what about our emotion? What about our experience? Does it matter? It does. But it should never lead us. We should never follow our experience. We should never follow our emotion. We should always follow the facts, what God has said and what God has revealed. So what about our experience? Well, here's my secret for you. All your emotion and all your experience, I want you to turn a deaf ear to it for right now, and I want you to follow the truth, what God has revealed, his word. And when you do, this will get noisy, okay? The experience and the emotion is going to get noisy. It's going to start barking, right? Ignore it. Keep following the facts, Keep following the truth. What's going to happen? The experience and emotion will begin to line up. It'll begin to gain balance. You'll see. It's the secret to how Christianity works. So the devil knows this. So the devil wants to move the text out of its lead position in your life. So what is leading in the church today? Is it fact? I would say uh, one of the number one definitions we could have for postmodernism, which is a very good way of describing where we are headed as a church, is that our truth is defined by how we feel, what we feel, and what we've experienced. So we get a collaboration of all of our corporate experience, and then we redefine truth to match it. So if it's true that all men are sexually addicted today, then that's what the truth is as opposed to the fact that God has given power over sin to break bondage. I don't care how intense the bondage is, and I don't care if 99.99999% of every person on this earth is struggling with it. God is superior, and his work on the cross is able to break every chain. That's what the truth says. I don't care what the experience says. So as a result, we need to make a choice. What role does the text play? So the three positions, above, beside, beneath. So one of the ways that I've, I've conveyed to students over the years is that there's three relationships you could have with the text of Scripture, okay? A very common one today is to come in above the Scripture. So the Scripture is down here. And you come in and you put the glasses on the end of your nose, you know, those little spectacles, and you have that wise look, and you go, aha, uh-huh. oh, the poor text, It has been so misunderstood. It has been so uh, mistranslated. And people don't really know what it means anymore, but I do. I have such a great mind that is greater than the text itself. And I know what it needs. It needs me. And so what happens is we come in above the text and we think of our own mind as being sharper 
and more wise than the text of Scripture. Okay, That is a very common thing that is happening in Christianity today, and that's coming in from above the text. Now, there's another one that many of us are more vulnerable to, because the first one, you're like, oh, I wouldn't do that. But the second one is something that we are more susceptible to, and that is to be beside the text. Okay, And this is sort of the buddy position, where you come up to the text, you're like, hey, how you doing today? And it's like, hey, let's go out and throw the football. Hey, let's shoot hoops together. You know, maybe these are guy things to do, but that's, that's my angle on it. And so you hang out. Now, what's interesting about a buddy, a chum, a friend position, that's, that's very noble because you love the text. You love hanging out with the text. You love reading the text. Hey, it's good stuff. However, the text, when he's a, a buddy or a chum or a friend, has no a, authority to command you to do anything. So if your buddy came over to your house and said, clean your room, wouldn't it be a little jarring? It'd be like, excuse me, uh, you're, you're my buddy. You don't tell me what to do. And that's exactly the weakness of the beside position. You see, the text of Scripture is not supposed to be your buddy. It's not just your friend. It's your Lord and Master. And so as a result, if you are above it, well, I can tell you right now your Christianity is going to stink. If you're beside it, you're susceptible to failure. Because when the Bible speaks clearly and gives you command, you may not hear it as an actual command, but more as an interesting notion of something that could add to your life. And so when you do that, you actually undermine the integrity of what God gave us the text for. Now the other option, which you're going to notice that I have a very uh, high bias towards, is to be beneath the text. And that is to actually bend your knee and lift the text above your own mind and consider it superior to you. Whatever thought you have that might contradict the text, I want you to ask yourself the question, are you smarter than God? And so submitting your own mind to the text of Scripture and saying, God, I trust you. What you say goes. I don't care if it's politically incorrect. If God said it, he's right. And so there's all sorts of people out there that want to throw their accusations towards the text of Scripture because it doesn't match social propriety today. And I'm going to say that I choose to have my social propriety defined by the kingdom of heaven and not by the kingdoms of this earth. The treasure map. So when we talk about the text of Scripture, it can be sometimes challenging to know how much value to place in it. You know that men and women have died to preserve the integrity of the text of Scripture? It is so valuable. It is so extraordinarily precious and sacred that to violate it, to change it, to sift through it and to alter it, I mean, very, very dangerous things to do. However, we do not worship the text of Scripture. We worship the one it points to. You see, if I gave you a treasure map and uh, you had that treasure map, is that treasure map valuable? Mm -hmm. What makes it valuable? The fact that it points to a treasure. You see, if you have the only treasure map on earth that points to that treasure, well then, that treasure map is actually as valuable as the treasure. Does that make sense? But when the treasure comes, you need to recognize its value is as a road sign. It is not the end in and of itself. Many Christians today have this notion that if they memorize the text of Scripture, that they have the treasure. And is memorization of Scripture helpful? Oh, yes. It is very, very significant and important. But why? Because it helps point you to the treasure. The treasure is what the treasure map is given you for. What's the treasure of Scripture? 
Jesus. You see, all of Scripture is going to point to an X that marks a spot. And if you want to be sort of creative, the cross that marks the spot. Okay, there's a cross that marks the spot, and that Bible that we have points to Jesus. So the reason we study the Bible, the reason we follow the Bible is why? To know him, to learn him, to enter into intimate fellowship with him, to be married with him for eternity. You see, it is leading us somewhere. And as a result, the more we study it, the more we find him. So the reason we esteem the text of Scripture is not just because it's the revelation from God to us, and it's a trust, but because it shows us the one thing in life that is more valuable than any other. So therefore, if you had a treasure map, and say it was going to lead you through this dark uh, valley, you know, wooded valley, this dangerous valley, say it was going to lead you up a high mountain cliff, uh, that was dangerous and you could fall. Uh, say it was going to lead you through a swampy area, and you're like, I don't like that. And so you clip off, like with your scissors, that part of the map. Uh, well, here's what happens. The moment you begin to trim the map, or you dip it in water to try and dilute the sharp black lines in it, because you don't like how clear it is. It's too clear. And so what you, you blur the lines. What are you doing? You're actually hindering your ability to get the treasure. If you trim off that little a slew of despond over here that you didn't want to go through, guess what? You're not going to get to the treasure. You have to go exactly where it leads you to go. If it says deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him, well, that's what you do. You don't say, oh, I don't like that part of the scripture. I'm going to not deny myself. There's no way I'm picking up a cross. And, you know, I would prefer to have Jesus without needing to follow him. Well, guess what? You will not find the treasure. You see, God has given us a very specific way of doing this but the map is what we need. So therefore, we lay down our life to preserve this map because this is the one key thing that can show us how to get to Jesus. So the map is not the treasure, but it is the only thing that can bring you to the treasure. When the text loses its godness. So where did the text come from? God. That's very, very important because there's a whole argument nowadays that the text comes from men. Good men, mind you, they're good men, but they're not God. This is the words of men. This isn't the word of God. So then one of them comes up to me and says, Eric, you're, you keep telling us that the Bible comes from God. Yes, I do. Well, who wrote the book of Luke? Luke. Okay, Eric, you just contradicted yourself. You said it came from God, but that Luke wrote the book of Luke? Yes, but Luke carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible is God-breathed. Though God has chosen to use men to write it, he inspired them or breathed through them these words. And that's an important understanding in our Christian thought. Because Jesus, who is the word of God in flesh or in person, you know that he is 100% man, and yet he's also 100% God? The text of scripture, it's written by men, yes, but it's 100% God. It's the same miracle. It's the same medley of man-God that is a revelation to this world. So it's important that we never lose the godness of the text. When you lose the godness of the text, you know what happens? It's interesting because I could give you a whole study if we had time, and I could show you all these different scholars that once they moved away from the godness of the text and they believed it was just the words of men, what happened next? Jesus no longer was God. It's interesting. It always follows that way. 
So Jesus loses his godness the moment the text loses its godness. And then what happens? What happens when Jesus loses his godness? What happens to the cross? No longer is it God dying for us. Now it is merely a good man that is showing us an example of love and sacrifice. There's no atonement. There's no redemption. There's no new covenant. Because how could a mere man pull this off? How could he forgive sins? Man can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So now suddenly you have removed the godness of salvation. What do you have left? I'm not exactly sure what you have left, but it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if it's not God, well then how could he procure us the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? No longer have we been made clean and pure vessels to receive the life of God because we are sinful. Well, what is Christianity if you nullify the text of Scripture as being from God? It's nothing. So as a result, you see why the devil spends all of his energy right here. He wants to remove the godness of the text of Scripture. He wants you to question it. So when the text loses its godness, everything else goes on meltdown. Jesus becomes just a really good man. And the cross becomes merely a wonderful example of love. This text is something very special. It's preserved. Somehow this text, though entire nations and kingdoms have attempted to eradicate it, destroy it, eliminate it from the world, guess what got eliminated? Those kingdoms. It's just text. How can text survive? How can text fight back? And yet, entire kingdoms that had power and sway over the world have tried to destroy it, and instead they were destroyed. It is preserved, it is timeless, it is perfect, it is sufficient. You know that there is nothing left out of Scripture? Everything that we need has been supplied to us. Every truth that must be passed along to us in our generation has been passed along. We can answer Every question through the word of God. We have wisdom for every circumstance. Even though it was written in many cases thousands of years ago, we have today in and through the text of scripture everything in order to see clearly the Christ, the Messiah. To see clearly the atonement, the redemption. To see clearly everything that we need for life and godliness in and through the power and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have been given everything we need. This text is truth without lie, exaggeration, or hyperbole. It is love, explaining a God who loves so much that he would expend the life of his only begotten son to rescue and redeem those he created. This is all captured in this text. The text is not the treasure, but the text is the thing that God chose to lead us to the treasure. It is part of, it's like that work glove that encompasses the invisible attributes of God that could not be understood any other way, that all of us as humanity, caught in our sin and lost in our sin, would never understand on our own because it is spiritually discerned, and that God has expressed to us through his word. How you handle the first finger, the text, sets the course for how you will handle the other four fingers. So as a result, I introduced you to five fingers, which was what I'm going to be walking through this week. The word of God in text, which is scripture, the word of God in person, which is Jesus Christ. The word of God in action, which is the cross. The word of God in us, which is the infilling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. 
and the word of God through us, which is the essence of what Christianity is. It's the function of Christianity. How do we respond to the life of God moving in? What happens? Well, the world is turned on its head is what happens. And so all of the other four that I just mentioned outside of the word of God in text will not function as they ought. When you lose the word of God in text, when you lose what we understand as the Bible, and you lose the godness of it, you will notice that the word of God in person will be lost. The word of God in action will be diminished. The word of God in us will be forgotten. The word of God through us will be completely perverted. It will be contorted out of the way God intended it to be. But when we get this right, when we get the text right, it sets the course for how we handle all the other four, and it changes the world. Father, give us a love for your word. Give us a passion to know you through your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of the revelation of God. Thank you for the word of God in text, in person, in action, in us, and through us. Lord, may you receive glory, honor, and praise. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.